Good morning. Put your seatbelts on. We're going to move a little fast here today. And uh, we're going to talk about part of disciple making that I feel is much, much overlooked. You make a disciple, we're commanded to make a disciple. There's three steps preach the gospel, second step, baptize those who believe, third step, teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. We're going to look at that step this morning. Turn to Luke chapter 4, if you will. We're going to hunt and peck through there a bit. We're not going to read the whole passage because my time is constrained, but we are going to be there in just a minute. How many of you are fans of The Chosen? How many, how many watched the end of season two this past week? Okay, so, sorry, might be a small spoiler alert for the rest of you, but one of the things that happened in this last episode is we finally got to the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll talk about a bit. And one of the things I love the imagination of these writers, they look at Jesus as a real human being. Matter of fact, he was 100% human. And just like I walked and paced around and was gathering my thoughts this morning and thinking all through what I studied and prepared, it shows Jesus doing that same thing as he prepares to teach that amazing hallmark speech of his ministry. And there's Matthew, the scribe, writing down. Isn't it interesting that we have such an exacting account in Matthew's gospel? I thought it was wonderful imagination by the writers and producers to, to give us that scene to say, yeah, Jesus had butterflies. It was a very important occasion. Also, humanly speaking, any leader worth their salt has a strategy they have a way that they purposely and intentionally go about reaching their goals. And I want to display to you this morning that I believe Jesus had a very clear strategy. If we look very closely in the Gospels, we will see that there is a very clear step in order and framework in Jesus' thinking. Mind you, remember, he took some very unformed men. In the space of three years, he prepared those men to be sent out to turn the world upside down with his preaching. How did that happen? Didn't happen by mistake. Didn't happen haphazardly. It was with a purpose. We're looking today, Jesus' strategy for making disciples was very importantly that third step, teaching them to obey. Any good leader thinks, what is my goal? Where am I trying to get to in the end? Jesus said, behold, in Revelation, I'm making all things new. I'm making all things new. He started... At the end, he started with what he was proposing to accomplish. He began with the end in mind. In Luke chapter 4, which remember, uh, what is the characteristic of Luke's gospel? Somebody tell me, what, what is one of the things about Luke's gospel that's unique to the other three gospels? Yes, that's, well, that's not completely unique because John's also went out to the world. But the fact is, Luke is the only gospel that has... He lays out that I consecutively told you the story of Jesus in a sequence, chronologically. So using that insight, we can actually look at what Jesus did. And again, love the chosen, but you know, there's, there's artistic imagination. So don't get hung up on how they sequenced the series. And hopefully I won't ruin it for you, but that did not start the way that the chosen series started. It starts... What we see here in Luke chapter 4, we have the temptation of Jesus starting verse 1 and um, down to verse 12, 12, 13. 
And notice verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover a sight to the blind, to those who are down, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Follow down. Jesus begins to speak to them and say, Look, I'm giving you this message, but I'm not doing everything here. I might not do miracles here that I'm going to do in Capernaum. And he talks about his vision. It's not just for the Jews. It's for people outside of the clan. And notice as he begins to speak of this, the outcome in verse 28, and all in that same synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Boy, that's, that's tough for the public speaker. You go from way up here to we want to kill you. What I propose from this passage, and we see he goes to Capernaum, and he begins to teach. Verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And he speaks, and he does miracles there. And in verse 43, and he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. See, Jesus was a radical. He was a radical. He taught a new message that introduced a new covenant that would create a new heart, which would give spiritual life to a new man who would become a worshiping citizen and a new kingdom. Jesus was revolutionary. Discipleship should be revolutionary. It should be the transformation of people that are unformed sinners in need of the grace of God and turns them into people who look and talk and think and act like Jesus. It's a challenging course. Christ's mission was to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 15, Luke 19 in order to make fully discipled worshipers of the Father. See, the goal isn't even just a disciple. It's a worshiper. You remember the commission? We skip over verse 18 of Matthew 28. And they came up to the mountain where Jesus had appointed. And what did they do? They worshiped him. Jesus was about making not just disciples, but worshipers. Fully discipled worshipers. Notice, this is not just the Son's mission, but it's the Father's. In John chapter 4, Jesus explained to his disciples that hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. It's not just the Son that's on the mission. The Father's on the mission. He's trying to draw people who will be extraordinarily different from the rest of the world. Christ's method was a radical difference. His training, His method, His message, His behavior, His choice of friends, and His followers were different. They were the unexpected. In Matthew chapter 7, that end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says in those last two verses of the chapter, it says, And when he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one as having authority and not like their scribes. Wishy-washy, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, well, we can look at this passage this way, or we can look at this passage this way, or the, or the rabbi so-and-so says this. Jesus was very straight and direct and authoritative, and he called people authoritatively. His ministry, his method, was also marked by radical identification. Radical identification. Jesus went places that were unexpected. He hung out with people that the religious people said you really shouldn't hang out, whether it's lepers or tax gatherers or, you know, unclean women, people from other parts of areas that were the outback, the demon-possessed. He met the needs and spoke to the heart of each person to whom he ministered, especially to those who were on the outside, especially to those that were on the outside. His model was holy character. It was holy character. Part of that difference was the difference of his, his inner life. It was part of what attracted people. It's also part of what repelled some people. They didn't, that John chapter 3 says, people don't want to come to light lest their deeds be exposed. And that's why Jesus had tremendous ministry to the broken. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Now look at this amazing commentary. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, these guys are fishermen, now they're itinerant preachers and apostles. It says, now as they observed Peter and John, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. That's one of the experiences of discipleship. The closer we lean into Jesus, the closer we want and we submit ourselves to have our character transformed and made like unto his own people say there's something different about you what is that that's what we should see as now come to the discipleship christ's training mode was a life imparted to a life howard hendricks one of the professors i admire from Dallas seminary used to say you cannot impart what you don't possess there's a need for us to be living out as disciple makers, and we're going to challenge that, that experience in a minute, but we need to be living as disciples in order to be a disciple maker. Maybe is that, that's part of our hesitancy. It's the exposure that happens when we say to somebody, like Paul said to those he ministered to, follow me as I follow Christ. That's a great responsibility, isn't it? 
Are you willing to let someone examine your life up close, ask you questions? It's an intimidating factor. Maybe that's what keeps some of us from becoming disciple makers, but it is worth it because we all can grow together in holiness and Christ-like character. Uh, first two couple weeks, I think Eric and Dave were talking about our identity. We looked a lot of, of, of different things about our identity. But let me throw some other ones, some other roles and parts of our identity that are part of this discipleship experience. How about older and younger? The fact that the scriptures say that there are older people and they have responsibilities for younger people in the faith. And younger people have responsibility to want to learn from older people. And a great example as Mike shared, and how he sought out that, that family to be discipled, to be encouraged by their life and their walk. Here's a tough one. How about being one of the persecuted? You remember we talked back in John chapter 15, 16, 17, Jesus said, look, the world's going to hate you. Are you ready to sign up for that? Because they hate me, Jesus said. How about learner, discipler? Both of these relationships kind of have this implied sense of there's somebody who's in charge and there's somebody who's submitting themselves to that experience. There's a, a, a collegiality and a working together, but very clearly there's, there's an authority submission relationship there. Somebody is saying, look, I will take responsibility, but I have expectations. And just like Jesus we're finite. We only have so much time, so much energy, so much availability, and it's right if we're going to disciple somebody to ask there to be some commitment. What about bond slave? Paul says, I'm a bond slave. I don't have my own options. I've submitted my life. I've handed it over to follow Christ to do what he calls me to do. Christ's strategy was built around four calls. Christ, in the Gospels, called people. We kind of saw some of that last week with the, the four fields, very similar. Each successive call brought the disciples into a closer relationship, but that closeness required greater commitment. The first stage was basically a very uncommitted stage. That's when Jesus ministered to the multitudes. It's in John chapter 1, when the disciples of John that we see there, they're hearing about Jesus, and, and John points, and he says, there's the Lamb of God. And they went to, up to meet him for the first time. And he said, Master, where are you staying? He said, come and see. This stage is very open. People come, they go. This is the seeker. This is the person who has not yet believed. There's not really commitment there. This is Jesus' ministry to the multitude, and there was a lot going out in a large kind of pro proclamation level of communication. And there's only one command that Jesus gave during that time. It was, believe on me. Believe on me. That's the call to the unbeliever who experiences and encounters Jesus Christ is, you have to believe on me. You have to stop trusting in yourself and these other things. In this period, and again, for some backdrop on this, if you look at A.T. Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels, this kind of, this kind of this study is drawn from that, looking at the, all the Gospels paralleled and looking at them chronologically. 
After a period of months, Jesus comes to some guys that had already believed in him. They've been coming and going, been a part of his ministry in a loose fashion. And he comes and he says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. This is the new believer. Their commitment here is to watch and to learn and to share what they've come to know. And the, and the goal here, if you see this, this went on for a period of about nine months. Where Jesus basically had, if you compare other gospels, he had 70 that he sent out two by two during this time. They had, they had come to understand what his heart was about. And they were committed to his ministry. They were willing to go into all the cities that had synagogues and to announce Jesus' coming so that they would be prepared. And he gives instructions and he says, look for a a person of peace. If they welcome you in, then give a blessing. But if they don't, shake the dust off and move on. Again, Jesus had a strategy. He wasn't going to spend time where people that weren't interested in hearing from him. And he moved on to the ones that were ready. The goal for the disciple is to capture the master's mission, to make it their heart. And quite frankly, I think discipleship breaks down, and I love what LT does, I love what other ministries that I've been involved with do, and that is until people have their mind changed to be passionate and broken about the lost condition and the fact that Jesus is coming there to, to rescue them, and to give them hope, and to extend eternal life to them, then if we move on to growing, we just make spiritually smart people. God's more about the transformation that happens on the inside. Part of that transformation is capturing his heart for the lost. The third, third call of discipleship in Mark chapter 3 is after these guys had gone out as 70 and there's ministry going on, Jesus is healing, he prays and he comes along to some of these followers and he says to 12 of those men, come and be with me. And in this period of time, Jesus brings them in closely. They basically have left everything. They are living with him day by day, hour by hour. They are going where he goes. They are serving alongside of him. And this is more challenging. There's a commitment to count the cost as they communicate the message because now they start to get the the blowback as well. They carry the master's mission. In this period of time, Jesus speaks 28 commandments to these 12 men, maybe to others as well that they're listening alongside of. But this, the point of this is to, to grow their character as disciples. Why? There are two attacks on Christianity. One is to attack the message. The other is to attack the messenger. Christ was looking to form a character in these men that would be unassailable. That people would have a sense that there was authority in their personal practice as well as in the words they shared. They needed to grow up and mature. This went on for 18 to 24 months. And then, as I taught uh, some months ago on John 15, this last stage, Jesus calls these followers to remain in him. That is to stay spiritually, organically connected to them because he's leaving in 
they will be connected to him through the Holy Spirit. And there's three commands given there, but it's expected to be lived out, lived out for the rest of a lifetime. That they become perpetual, lifelong disciplers of others. The, the handout I gave to you is what was developed over a period of years in a ministry I was a part of, where we actually looked at those Greek imperatives that Jesus spoke in the Gospels. We distilled them, we boiled them down, and there are approximately 33 separate topics which Jesus taught didactically. That is, systematically, some of these commands were given, and that would be like the Sermon on the Mount. He's not speaking to any particular person by way of discipleship, but he is laying out some truth that he expects to be obeyed. And dialectically, that is, Jesus along the way, kind of the sense of Deuteronomy chapter 6, as you rise up, as you walk in the way, as you lie down, you're speaking the truth. And Jesus taught in the teachable moment with his disciples many times where he is addressing truth to them and applying it right in the midst of their life. That's sometimes probably a missing element of discipleship today, isn't it? These were the core teachings handed down by the apostles for close to 20 years before we have our earliest recorded epistle. This is what, um, this is what Paul called the tradition. In, um, <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says to the Corinthians, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions which I handed down to you. Also in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15, he says to the Thessalonian believers, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by mouth or by letter from us. There's this idea that the early church, people were hanging on to orally transmitted truth before it was ever written, which presupposes that these people are really good listeners. They weren't forgetting what they were taught. They were taking accountability for it and hanging on to it as if their life depended on it. And wasn't it? Some of these topics that are addressed in the Gospels, Jesus to his followers, forgiveness, servanthood, cross-bearing, fear, moral purity, judging, abiding, confrontation, paying taxes, remaining, shepherding, making disciples, his last command. As we said before, nearly a third of those are found in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ's curriculum, his commands, when properly understood, these teachings explain the New Testament. Christ gave a command in the Gospels during his ministry. We see the early church living it out and illustrated. And then we see it amplified. We see those truths amplified in the epistles, sometimes by more instruction or added instruction, but many times because it's correcting failures of obedience that the churches were not obeying. Therefore, they had to be reminded and readdressed again. And finally, we're judged by them. If you look at Jesus, how he speaks to the churches in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. What I gave you here is the first commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples, not to those who had not yet believed. You've heard, I lack opportunities to witness because I don't see many unbelievers. I don't know if any of you ever had that excuse. 
But Jesus said, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Jesus wants us to change our thinking. There are people that he is calling out divinely, sovereignly all around us. We just, we need to develop the eyes to see them. We need to go where those people are. If you look over on the backside, you see where it's commanded and it's repeated many, many times for us to, to share, to preach. You see all the references where it's illustrated in the book of Acts where people actually did take the gospel to somebody. And it's amplified many places in the, prince, in the epistles. I'm hoping to get all 30, 33, 34 of them done one day. It's in process. Where do you fit? Well, you should either be discipled or making a disciple. You might be in an interim where you're praying for somebody to be connected to to do that. But if you are not yet discipled, you need to look to somebody that's older, wiser, and has the character of Christ that you can observe and see if they would be interested in spending time with you. And maybe I say to those of you who've been in the faith for many years, you have an accountability to Christ himself to be investing your life into someone else that's younger and less experienced and not fully matured in the faith yet. We need to learn how to obey Christ's commands. You see, Christ does have one final call. If you turn to Revelation chapter 21, we just sung about perfect submission, which is perfect delight. It really is. Submission is not a dirty word. It's a wonderful thing to be under the authority of someone else who has your best interest always at heart. In Revelation chapter 21, we see Christ, the glorified Christ, the one who's on the throne, the one whose eyes are flame of fire, who is in, in brilliance to the extent that there is not a need for a light source. And we see verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Over page chapter 22. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. What is Christ coming to reward us for? Service, yes. But in essence, the source of all service should really come from a heart of love and obedience. Remember we talked about in John 15 that, in John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments, it's all over the Gospels if you see it. But, but he's looking for us to be responsible stewards because when he gave that commission to the 12 on that mountain, 
they gave it to somebody else. And they invested in somebody else. And they gave it to somebody else. And for the last 2,000 years, somebody gave it to you. And Christ is looking to see whether you're going to give it to the next person. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash the robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's the final call. And Jesus is looking for our obedient, submissive, responsive participation in the amazing work of making disciples of all the nations. Because there's a time it's going to come to a close when he's going to say, come home, your work's done. We need to be busy, obediently carrying out what Christ has called us to so many times. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would impress upon us this heavy, blessed, amazing, valuable stewardship that we have to to allow the Spirit of God to invade our lives in such a way that we experience growth and transformation. And then, Father, to have that sense of obligation that whatever has been passed to us, that we have a burden to pass it to someone else, to share what we know wherever we are. Help us to see ourselves in the collective of this wonderful thing called the body of Christ, where the stronger help the weaker, where the older help the younger, and where there is a welcoming and a responsiveness to that kind of ministry. We pray, Father, you give us wisdom in these things. Help us to judge ourselves rightly, to know what point of preparation we should be in. And we pray, Father, that especially you would raise up disciple-makers in this congregation. For your glory's sake, we pray.